and welcome to the third episode of the Looking After Nature podcast, bringing you close to nature and wildlife in Hampshire. My name is Andy Davidson and I'm a ranger at Hampshire Countryside Service. I'm here with my co-host and fellow ranger, Carly Harrod. Hi Carly. Hi Andy, it's great to be back out on another one of our sites today. This time we're coming to you from Limington and Keyhaven Nature Reserve. What a fabulous day it is as well. It's quite a difference to the, what's been going on recently, isn't it? It's beautiful. And unfortunately, this is our last day out before the English lockdown starts. So we're making the most of it and getting out and recording the podcast today in the sunshine. Yeah, so we're up on the seawall at Limington and uh, looking out across the Solent's the bit of water we near in the Isle of Wight. And you can almost, well, it's not, it's actually, it's quite clear today, but it's flat calm. You can see the Isle of Wight just across the water there. It looks like you can almost touch it. Or swim to it. I wouldn't like to try that at this time of year, though. No, I mean, there was people just now doing a bit of wild swimming out there, but as you say, I don't think I'd want to join them. So last month, we were at one of our sites delving straight into what the Hampshire Countryside Service gets up to and how our work benefits the countryside. With the days getting shorter, it's important we still make time to get outside and enjoy the, the outdoors. We'll be helping you make the most of what Hampshire has to offer and how it can benefit your health and well-being. So do you find getting out and about helps your well-being, Andy? Absolutely. I, I mean, I just love the countryside. I mean, it's probably evident by now, you know, I did a bit of bird watching, but just getting out, breath of fresh air. It's got proven health benefits, so we all know, really. And especially at this time of year, with the days getting shorter, the nights drawing in, you want to get out and about and enjoy that fresh air and get some of the vitamin D into you from the sunshine, don't you? Well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, just getting out and about is just fantastic. So, as always, we are having another conversation in the countryside today. We're joined here in Limington by Pete Donnell. Limington is a really important nature reserve for both wildlife and the local community, and Pete is going to tell us more about it. Hi, Pete. Good to see you today. Hi, Andy. Good to see you. <laughs> you're one of the old guard, aren't you? I mean, we've had quite a few of the people who have been here for donkey's years. I mean, you're one of them, aren't you? I'm still very young, Andy, but I have been here since 1988. Well, actually at Limington or...? No, I've been here for 18 years. 2002 came here, but I've worked for the service since 1988. So, uh, yeah, I suppose one of the old guards, unfortunately. So you particularly like this site, do you? I love it. And, you know, who can blame you on a day like today? I mean, it's absolutely stunning. But, uh, yeah, I've worked on quite a few sites across the, across the service, but uh, I think probably uh, Limington Kieran is, is my favourite, I would say. It's great. I mean, it's a fantastic site. I mean, it looks really wild and natural here. Has it always been the case? As is pretty much always the case on the coast, when you look at something, it might look natural, but it's very, very man-made, very artificial landscape. But, um, for instance, we're standing on the sea wall at the moment, seawall this particular section of seawall was only built in 1991 so um, the impact that that's had on the coast is, is very significant it creates a fantastic footpath for people to walk along but you certainly can't call it natural the Ceylon lagoons behind here are also man-made as are most of the other habitats on the reserve but they they, they uh, what we've done here over the over the, the years has created an area which is fabulous for uh, for wildlife and I think I'm right in saying that it's got quite almost industrial history this area isn't it? It has. Um, from the sort of late middle ages right the way through to the sort of middle of the 19th century there was a vast salt making industry here probably the most important salt making industry in in England and uh, most of these low-lying marshes would have been turned over to salterns and people were making salt from seawater uh, huge amounts of salt as well it's hard to imagine but some years they were making several thousand tons of salt from seawater um, the industry 
thrived during the sort of 17th and 18th centuries, but died in the middle of the 19th century because basically you start, they started to be able to mine salt from Cheshire and it came, became very much cheaper, shipped it down to London for next to nothing on the new trains and so the, the salt industry here died. So they were then left with a large low-lying landscape of heavily salt polluted land, couldn't be used for growing crops so it was turned over to sort of rough grazing. I mean, it certainly looks fantastic now. Last time we uh, talked to Bird of West Solent and they're very much focused on the wintering birds. I mean, I think this is probably quite important for wintering birds as well, isn't it? Yeah, it's very important for wintering birds. I mean, one of the features of these low-lying coastal grazing marshes is that they're uh, very wet in the, uh, in the winter, which attracts large numbers of uh, wintering waders and wildfowl, things like widgeons, teal, brent geese. Uh, black-tailed gobbets, you can see all of those species here in, in very large numbers on the grazing marshes. Um, in the lagoons themselves, uh, again, you've got a whole series of, uh, of islands. The islands act as high tide roosts for wading birds. So when the areas that they feed on offshore on the mudflats where they're feeding during low tide are covered, they can go somewhere where they know they're safe from disturbance by uh, people and their dogs. So these islands are very, very important as high tide roosts for wading birds. Doing this in early November, and this is really the start of the wintering season for most of these uh, waders and wildfowl. A lot of these have come from a long way away. The Brent geese have come in from northern Russia, as of the widgeon. Uh, teal have come from sort of Eastern Europe largely. And then black-tailed gobbets have come down from Iceland. So all these birds migrate here to spend the winter and they'll be here through till end of March, early April before undertaking their return migrations. And the reason they come here is because our climate is really very mild compared to the places they, they breed. So there's food available to them right the way through the winter. And reserves like this are, are ideal because we, we put quite a lot of effort into managing the site. So it's ideal for them. So we graze the site off during the summer, top off the rush. So there's big open areas of coastal grazing marsh which are quite wet, lying wet, perfect for birds like uh, Brent geese and widgeon that basically are grazers, they feed on short grass. So yeah, the, the reserve is, uh, is ideal for them, but it's ideal for them because we make it that way. But it's not only the wintering birds, I mean, this is a very special area for breeding birds as well, isn't it? It is, so um, in the lagoon in front of us here at Normandy, we've got a series of, uh, of islands that were created when the lagoon was excavated. And this was excavated in 1991, to provide material for the sea wall we're actually standing on now. So the, the material we're standing on came originally from that lagoon. And in doing so, they created this series of islands which are fantastic. During the, during the winter now, at high tide, they provide a, a high tide roost for uh, wading birds that during low tide are feeding offshore on the mudflats. When the mudflats are covered up at high tide, they need to go somewhere. The islands provide a nice, safe high tide roost for them. And that, that's really crucial really with a lot of these wading birds having a safe and secure high tide roost. During the summer, the same islands are very important for breeding birds. So we have things like little terns, common terns, oyster catchers, and even avocets have started breeding out here as well now. So these really are very, very important. And um, again, they, they work well because they, although they're easy to see and you can stand on the sea wall and look at these islands and see all the birds out there, but they, the birds feel secure because there's a big wet ditch and a, a electrified fence between us and them. So they soon learn that they're fairly safe. Yeah, I'm just looking at your shiny new fence. This is pretty new, isn't it? It is, yeah. We, there's been a fence around the lagoon since 1991 when the original seawall was built. But as you can imagine, after all those years, it was in a pretty poor and dilapidated state. So uh, earlier this year, we dismantled it 
in some pretty horrendous weather, it has to be said, and then uh, re replaced the entire fence right the way around, just over a kilometre of fencing uh, with uh, new stock netting, new posts and a couple of strands of electrified wire on top. The main reason for this is, uh, is to stop foxes. Foxes are a, a main predator on the lagoon and they're quite capable of climbing fences and if there's birds breeding up on the islands they'll soon target them so the idea is to try and keep the foxes out of the lagoon certainly during the breeding season and this last year was was very successful we uh, the new fence seemed to do its job and we had our best ever year for breeding birds in the lagoon so with the fence people I'm right in saying it's part funded with in partnership with the RSPB RSPB's EU life turn project provided quite a bit of funding for this fence um, primarily because we've got terns nesting in the lagoon, both common and little terns. Um, the original fence had been up since the uh, sea wall was built in 1991, so it was in a pretty dilapidated state by, uh, by the end of last year. So we spent uh, quite a bit of time dismantling it in some pretty atrocious weather, uh, and then had it replaced uh, with a much more uh, together fence with a couple of strands of electrified wire at the top and it's been extremely effective. This, this summer was the best breeding season we've ever had in the lagoon, so I think it worked in keeping out um, foxes, which is the, the, its primary aim. The reason you have the two strands of electrified wire on top is the foxes are very good at climbing fences. They, they won't have any problem getting over that, but obviously a bit of electrified wire discourages them, and uh, it, it certainly, certainly worked. I can see out in the water there, there's a couple of things that look like somebody's put a big table out there. What are those? That's a, a raft which we, uh, we put out there to try and encourage uh, breeding common terns. Um, and actually it was successful this year. We did actually have a pair nest on there this year. But to be honest, most of them nested on the island. So um, rafts can be effective. Um, usually we're, where there isn't much other habitat. So if gravel pits and places like that where you haven't got many places for terns to nest, they'll, they'll take to rafts quite red, uh, readily. But here, they're less keen because they've got plenty of other places to nest, but uh, at least one pair did use it this year. I mean, talking about saline lagoons, I mean, they're not quite salt and they're not quite freshwater. How do they work and what's special about them? Okay, so saline lagoons are an extremely rare habitat because they can only really exist in that interface between the sea and the land. Um, so seawater is about 36 parts per thousand salt. So obviously if you swallow a bit of seawater, it's pretty obviously salty. Freshwater is zero. Most of the saline lagoons here are about 20 parts per thousand, so about halfway, um, which in itself doesn't seem very significant, but actual fact it means that there's a whole suite of plants and animals that can live in those lagoons and nowhere else. So they can't live in freshwater, they can't live in seawater. So they're specialist um, animals and plants of saline lagoons. And we've got a, a fantastic range here. This, this, this suite of saline lagoons along the coast between the Lymington River and Keyhaven are some of the most important in the country. And there are a whole range of little animals, things like lagoon shrimp, um, lagoon cockle, uh, the burrowing starlet sea anemone, which is a cute little thing, burrows into the mud, and a fabulously named um, plant called the foxtail stonewort, which is extremely rare, and again, can only live in a, in a saline lagoon. So these species are specialist in this habitat. And because they're specialist in a rare habitat, that only occurs in that interface between the sea and the land, they tend to be rare species themselves. So one of the reasons this whole site was designated as a nature reserve is because of all these little critters that are living in the, the mud and the water of these saline lagoons. They're not easy to see, not particularly sexy really, but um, 
they are extremely rare and we've got a you know a, a real responsibility for managing them and maintaining the the, the water and the lagoons in in good condition so you've got all these rare shrimps in here pete surely all these birds are eating these shrimps aren't they um i think they can cope with the uh, the level of predation um an interesting thing about rarity is that very often although a, a, an organism may be extremely rare nationally it may, may only occur in a very few places where they do occur it can be very common so in this lagoon in front of us we've probably got tens of thousands of these nematostella vectensis this little burrowing anemone but having said that you wouldn't find it in many other locations so you have to be a bit careful with rarity and um, overall numbers but uh, generally speaking they do pretty well here and one of the reasons this whole site was designated as a nature reserve and a site of special scientific interest is because of these uh, plants and animals, these specialist plants and animals that live in these saline lagoons along, the, along this section of the coast. The lagoons themselves are quite interesting because when the, um, when the salt industry basically finished in the middle of the 19th century, pr prior to that they didn't really have much of a sea wall because they, they wanted to allow the salt in so it would flood the pans and they could make their salt. But as soon as the, uh, the salt industry finished, they, they needed a seawall to stop constant flooding the land that they were trying to graze. So to make a seawall, they needed some material. And so they basically dug material from the nearest bit of ground all the way along the inside of the boundary. And so there's a whole string of these seawalls, uh, of these saline lagoons now, which are basically just borrow pits for the old seawall. So most of these saline lagoons would have been created in the mid, late 19th century. This one in front of us though, at Normandy Lagoon, is of much more recent origin. This was dug out in 1991 to provide material for the seawall we're standing on now. And this is a much more substantial structure. The seawall was rebuilt in 1991 to be a much, much bigger structure. They needed an awful lot of material. And so that's when they created uh, Normandy Lagoon and all the, uh, all the islands we see in front of us. So we had that sparrow shoot through and suddenly all these birds are in the air calling, aren't they? It was quite amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, that was, uh, that was stunning, wasn't it? I mean, uh, it only takes a, a bird of prey to suddenly appear and all hell breaks loose. And there's probably about, I don't know, a dozen different species of waders and wildfowl up in the air wheeling around. Um, spot shank calling there. Yeah. Um, they'll, soon, they'll soon settle down again, though, because the, the big female sparrow was sat on that post and uh, most of these birds will settle down and um, resume their, their high tide roosting until she moves again. Because you get quite a few different types of bird of prey here, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very good. If, um, if you come here to, uh, during the, the winter, then marsh harriers and peregrines are fairly, fairly regular. Obviously, sparrowhawks and kestrels as well. Uh, and during the, uh, during the summer, you'll quite regularly see, um, see hobbies as well, which are a small falcon that um, feeds mainly on sort of swallows and martins, but also takes dragonflies and things like that in the, in the autumn. So. Yeah, it's, it's a very good site for, for birds of prey. And actually, it's quite a good way of spotting birds of prey, isn't it? Looking for that sort of reaction. Birds flying up in the air, going all over the place, and uh, quite often that's the time to have a look around, see if you can see a bird of prey, isn't it? That's right, yeah. As soon as you see that, if the birds sort of explode into life, then they've, they've seen something nearly always. So, uh, yeah, it's a good way of checking. So when, when you see the birds doing that, it's always good to look up. There's an avocet flying there. Just, uh, just landed in the middle of the water. Actually, while we're standing here talking, Pete, somebody's pointed out there's actually a seal offshore, isn't there? Which you can just about see it going along over there. Yeah, that's. Um, it looks like a common seal to me, um, and it looks like it's eating a flounder, uh, which is a fairly common species of flatfish along here. Um, seals are surprisingly regular now in the, in the Solent. In fact, we see occasionally see grey seals as well. 
common is, is obviously more regular, but um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good indication that um, perhaps the, the water is, is, is relatively clean and they're not persecuted anymore as they perhaps have been in the past. So yeah, it's hard to think you go down to the coast in Hampshire and look out and you've got a fairly good chance of seeing a seal. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's strange though, although some people call them common seals, it's not the most common seal in Britain, is it? The grey seal is commoner. It is, yeah, grey seal. There were huge populations of grey seals up on the east coast. Um, but down here in the Solent, it, yeah, it, the common seal is, is the more regular one anyway, certainly, and it, uh, the smaller of the two. So we've been looking inland. If we turn around and look at offshore, we've got these low islands here with this vegetation on. Yeah, so this area is uh, part of the uh, Hampshire Wildlife Trust's uh, reserve, and that's a real mixture of uh, salt marshes and mudflats. It's a pretty substantial reserve, covers about 1,500 acres from Hurst Spit down to Tanner's Lane at Pyrewell. And um, in combination with the Hampshire County Council Reserve that we've been looking at earlier on, uh, we've got about 2,000 acres of protected coastal habitat, which is by far the largest area really in, in Hampshire. So it's, uh, it's a real mosaic of different habitats from open water, coastal uh, grazing marshes, areas of scrub, vegetated shingle, salt marshes as we talked about earlier. So um, yeah, it's, it's, a, um, it, it's, it's an amazing area really. And um, one of the reasons there's so many uh, birds here and so much wildlife is because you've got such a range of habitats in a, a relatively small area. And these offshore islands are quite important for gulls in the summer, aren't they? Yep, during the, uh, during the summer, you have uh, a large population of black-headed gulls nesting off there. Uh, most years there's about seven, between seven and eight thousand pairs of black-headed gulls nesting on these, uh, on these salt marshes, as well as a range of waders, things like oyster catchers and redshank also nest out there. And we have a few terns nesting on the shingle islands on the edges of the salt marsh. The only problem, if you like, or the fly in the ointment is that these marshes are eroding quite rapidly, a uh, combination of um, sea level rise um, and increased storminess that we're getting these days and the dieback of Spartina, which is this grass that binds the salt marshes together, is causing them to, to disappear at quite a rapid rate. You know, they're, they're eroding away at maybe 10 metres a year in places. And uh, current predictions are that most of these offshore salt marshes will be gone within the next 40 to 50 years. So unfortunately, the gulls will then lose the, uh, the areas which they, they currently nest. Well, as we've been standing here, Pete, there's clearly quite a lot of people here. and. Uh... Clearly it's not only important for the wildlife, it's important for people as well, isn't it? It's very important for people, yeah. I mean, we, we've got a number of counters at various entrance points to the reserve, so we've got a pretty good idea how many people use this reserve, and it's around 300,000 people per year, which is an extraordinary number, really, and it's open 24-7, 365 days a year. Um, so um, there are a number of very nice circular walks as well, as well as the linear Solent Way, which runs all the way along the, uh, the sea wall. Um, lots and lots of different types of activities. Obviously today we've seen mainly walkers, but lots of dog walkers. Um, we have fishermen that use the site, cyclists, runners, bird watchers of course, lots of bird watchers here. Uh, and even, you know, deep water, uh, sort of open water swimming has become very popular recently off offshore. So from a recreational point of view, I mean, it, it, this landscape has changed. You know, it's gone from being uh, an almost an industrial landscape while they were making salt here through being a sort of landscape of almost dereliction when there was nobody really here, it was just a few animals being grazed. Now it's a recreational landscape. And we manage it for the conservation value and the important species that are here, but we also manage it for, for people. 
and trying to mitigate the potential conflicts between people, these 300,000 people want to come here, and all the wildlife. And generally speaking, I think it works quite well. Well, thanks, Pete. It's been absolutely fascinating today and coming to see this site and hearing so much about it. That's all right, Andy. No problem. Really enjoyed it. Shows us a good day as well. So, Andy, that was a brilliant chat there with Pete, and it's all about the special place that Lymington is. It's definitely worth a visit, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely amazing, the history as well as the wildlife and its importance for people. So, yeah, it's absolutely amazing what goes on in the country, what has gone on in the countryside across its history. And the amount of birds here today is amazing, and they're not all here yet, are they? No, no, there's still the peak is yet to arrive as they get pushed across from the continent. And I think we're well known on our podcast now for inserting random facts and odd things into these conversations, aren't we? We are. We do have a lot of random facts between us, but I don't have any today. Do you have any? I've got a couple, yeah. Um, so we talked about salt. I mean, people thought, why would they be making it? But salt was amazingly important before refrigeration came along because it's the only way you could preserve food. Ah, see, now we take salt for granted, don't we? We just go to the supermarket and buy it. Well, but... yeah. <laughs> but um, actually... There's a good fact that comes about from that. Do you know where the word salary comes from? No. In Roman times, they actually used to pay their soldiers in salt because it was so valuable. The Latin for salt is sal, and so salary is based on that. Oh. So that's why we all get a salary now. I'm glad I don't get paid in salt, though. I'm glad it's more money. <laughs> I don't think my mortgage company would take salt as a payment. And actually, we're looking across the Isle of Wight over there, and you can see all that lovely woodland and... It's absolutely spectacular, isn't it? It's so close. You look as though it feels like you could touch it as well. Yeah, it's very close. But do you know there's no tawny owls on the Isle of Wight? Why? Well, tawny owls, unlike a lot of species, we talked about all these migrating birds flying thousands of miles. Mm. Tawny owls barely move. Oh. And they certainly don't like crossing water. And you'd think, actually, they'd look across and think, actually, it looks like some good woodland over there, because they're common, really common in Hampshire, but yep. they just don't cross the water, so there's no tawny owls over ah. there. See, so that, does that mean the one that lives by my house basically lives by my house? Yeah, they, they very rarely far. move any distance at all. So do you have a favourite part of the site, Andy? Actually, there's a flood at Lower Pennington Lane by the car park. There's a big... Normally, in most winters, it floods. And then as the evening goes down, you get all the lapwings flying in. And it's absolutely stunning there. So that bit of marsh at Lower Pennington is a beautiful bit. I've not really been here that much. I'm usually working more in the east of the county. So I will definitely be coming back to visit and seeing all the fantastic sights to see. So that wraps up the third episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening to Looking After Nature, the Hampshire Countryside Service podcast. Don't forget to subscribe for more nature, conservation and well-being content. We'd love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts or if there's anything you'd like us to discuss in the future episodes. Let us know by tweeting at HantCS or messaging us on Facebook and Instagram. We're at Hampshire Countryside. And we'd really appreciate it if you'd rate and review our podcast on iTunes, as this helps other people find us. In the meantime, check out our social media pages for relevant updates. For now, thanks again for listening. I'm Andy Davidson. And I'm Carly Harrod. See you next time. (laughs) 